Have you ever felt homesick? Not just physically homesick, but spiritually homesick. We're going to talk about that next on the Monday Christian Podcast. You're listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program dedicated to helping you put into action the truth of God's Word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here's your host, Ezra Beyer. Well, hey there. Welcome to another episode of the Monday Christian Podcast. You know, a few weeks ago, I was uh, just thinking to myself about upcoming guests to invite on this show, and specifically during this COVID-19 season. It's like, it's, it's hard to kind of find a balance between just continuing and um, booking guests as you typically would, but then you also want to find guests that would speak to um, some of the issues that we're really struggling with today. On the podcast, uh, for this episode, I've brought my friend Stan Key. Now, Stan, he's a Bible teacher, uh, president of the Francis Asbury Society, and uh, as you're going to hear in a minute, I'll share this, but he's one of the best Bible teachers I've ever heard. Just a just phenomenal teacher, um, has a huge passion for the Old Testament. Several years ago, I heard him do a series on Jeremiah. And as I was flipping back through the workbook that uh, he, he taught through, uh, I came across Jeremiah 29, and he speaks about the, the need, really, that Christians have to be homesick, that of course, this world is not all that that we're looking forward to. There's something that that lies ahead, and uh, so I just I I thought, man, why don't I bring him on, and we'll just dig into Jeremiah 29 together and really tackle this topic. And in the process, I really hope that if you're feeling anxious, uh, maybe discouraged or worried during this time, that this brings hope to you. It brings encouragement. So let's go ahead and tackle it and jump into this week's episode with Stan Key, Francis Asbury Society. My guest on the podcast tonight is my friend Stan Key, and uh, Stan has been a friend of mine for a number of years, and uh, just really, really appreciate him. He's a president of the Francis Asbury Society. Got that link in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen if you want to check it out uh, during the course of our program together. And uh, just, I was talking to several people about this before I um, before I came on this call. He's, he's, one of the cool things, and this sometimes you don't find this with Bible teachers. Um, Bible teachers can sometimes be notoriously deep, um, but not very relatable sometimes, unfortunately. Uh, Stan is... He is one of those guys, literally, I could listen to for just hours because he just, his love for people uh, just comes through so, so clear. And uh, Stan, I'm going to, you're going to be doing a lot of the talking tonight, but just before, uh, I want to pull up a little um, intro from my friend Troy Keaton. He pastors Eastlake Community Church in Manita, Virginia, and he had a couple nice things to say about you, so I'm just going to pull that up real quick and have him share uh, a word to, um, to introduce you. I love Stan Key. Stan, his wife Katie, have been friends for many years. We have benefited greatly as Stan has come here and taught us the word in a very deep, powerful, and yet practical way. You're gonna be blessed tonight as you hear what Stan has to say about Jeremiah. I love his series on Jeremiah. God bless you, Stan, we love you. Well, hey, let's go ahead and, and jump right into this, and uh, give me a little bit of your background. I know a little bit of it, but our audience probably doesn't. H how did you first come to faith in Christ? Ezra, it's such a joy to be with you and to be a part of your ministry, to be a part of your people. I thank you for this opportunity. My history is fairly generic. Grew up in Georgia, raised in a United Methodist parsonage home didn't really come to faith, personal faith, until I was at Asbury College. Then I was heard really the gospel for the first time in a form that enabled me to respond and through God's grace was able to say yes to the call to follow Jesus. 
My senior year, I came to a place of full surrender at a holiness meeting, actually. I remember going to an altar and saying, Lord, I want all of you, and I know that you want all of me. And if you're good with that deal, I am too. And that's more or less where the journey began. Well, that's a cool start. And uh, you obviously somewhere along the way, you met your wife, Katie. How did yes. that all come about? Uh, choosing Jesus and choosing Katie were all sort of wrapped up in the same choice. Katie was a type of female that I had never met before, and her devotion and commitment were complete and total. And when I encountered that, particularly in romance, it was something I uh, found incredibly compelling. And uh, that drew our hearts together. And really, for 42 years, we've been trying to discern the next step in the journey, one step at a time. You know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had Mike Avery, former president yes. of God's Bible School and College. And he talked about the impact Dennis Kinlaw had on his life, just a significant uh, impact. Dennis Kinlaw, your father-in-law. and uh, Yes. So— just as kind of a dovetail into that previous podcast, what impact? And listen, if you don't haven't heard of Dennis Kinlaw, man, you got to check out some of his books. Um, um, phenomenal. What impact did uh, his life have on on yours? Ezra, I appreciate that. Uh, of course, the family connection. My father-in-law uh, is the dominant one, but he was certainly uh, he was the president of Asbury at the time college, Asbury University now. Asbury in 1970, 50 years ago, went through the revival. It's a very famous story about revival, an eight-day period where chapel never ended. But Dennis Kenlaw is associated with that revival. And uh, so it's sort of the legacy that I stepped into through marriage uh, he died three years ago at age 95, but uh, a great writer, uh, a scholar, Hebrew scholar, but as well as an evangelist. That was the term he loved the most in preaching holiness of heart and life and spreading scriptural holiness in the tradition of John Wesley. That was what he was all about. If, if, if you go to our website, you'll find a host of books by Dennis Kenlaw, all of them are worth reading. I didn't know you were going to ask me that question, but yeah, thank you. I know it just if someone never had heard his name before, where would be the best uh, the best book, best place to start? Um, well, his devotional book, "This Day with the Master," oh, that's awesome. Published, yes, is just little snippets of meat every morning. Um, Let's start with Jesus is probably his classic theological statement. My favorite is lectures in Old Testament theology. <laughs> and when you read a chapter, you don't know whether he's addressing your mind or your heart. And uh, it, because they're both so integral to really the holy life, thinking right, be transformed by the renewing of your minds, but also the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the heart, filling you with perfect love. Those were themes that were part of Dennis Kinlaw's life. And if we stay here, we could be here all evening on this subject. Oh, it would I, be well. Oh, I know. And one of the things you just mentioned that, that I love, and this comes through so much in your teaching when, when I've heard you, is just that connection between the heart and the mind. And you really you have to hit both, don't you? Oh, Ezra, uh, you know, the great commandment, when the lawyer asked Jesus, what's it all about? What's the Torah, the Mosaic revelation about? Jesus said, well, good question. It's about loving God with what? All your heart, but also all of your mind uh, and your strength. And loving God with our mind is something evangelicals don't always do well. And uh, we tend to give him our hearts and our souls and our spirits. Um, also loving God with your body. Uh, Paul said, you know, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that you present your bodies, not just your hearts. But, um, but yes, Dennis Kedlaw was an intellect, 
but a passionate evangelist of the heart all at the same time. So let's get back to your journey. Um, you and Katie got married, and now I, I know I know more of like the latter portion of your your journey. And at some point, uh, you went over to as a Paris. Is that correct? And we went to uh, France as missionaries with one mission society in 1983, and were there for 10 years in the heart of secularism and uh, working on a team, planting a church, little tiny church in the suburbs of France. We were there for 10 years until our visas were denied, and we basically had to come home. That's a big part of our journey. And then you, so 10 years there, and then uh, you pastored a church in Loudonville. It was called, La- Correct. Oh, that was the name of the church as well, Loudonville. You're, you're very good, Ezra. Okay. Loudonville is a suburb of Albany, New York. Yep. Albany, New York, of course, the capital of New York State. I grew up south of the Mason-Dixon line in the Bible Belt. Being in Albany, New York was a, a long way from home. According to George Barna, the pollster, from about seven years ago, he did a study of what he called post-Christian cities in America. And according to his poll, Albany, New York was number one, the most post-Christian city in America. And we had the privilege of pastoring a church there for 18 years. And I say privilege, it was a true privilege. Now, you got to remember, we moved to Albany from Paris, France. So there was a lot of Christians in Albany compared to Paris, but it was still a, a, a very secular, worldly, mission kind of location. But we absolutely loved pastoring in Albany, New York. We were there for 18 years, and the church-pastor connection was just one of those marriages that, that God made happen. Seven years ago, we left there, and we've been in Wilmore, Kentucky, uh, with the Francis Asbury Society since then. You've written a ton. I got this book uh, on Jeremiah, so you might remember that you've done this uh, study. and But you've written a number like this, and but there you go. <laughs> no, that's the book. You've still got the I Bible got the study. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, I don't have that's... to yourself. Now, now, going back there. Yes, that touches my heart. Thank you. We did that at camp meeting. Yeah, yeah right? no, no, several, several years ago, I heard you share it. Now, I'm curious, what impact did that time that you spent in France and that the time that you spent in Loudonville, how did that set you up for your study of, we're going to talk about tonight, Jeremiah and, all, and all, really all the other studies that you did, how did that sow the seeds for the teaching that you would go on to do? That is an outstanding question because we shape our gospel in terms of the audience that we're addressing. And very often, those of us who've lived our whole lives in, say, the Bible Belt or the Christian Midwest of America, where we're sort of surrounded by people, even if they're not born-again believers, they have more or less a Judeo-Christian worldview. We shape our preaching in terms of what people are hearing. So if you say the Ten Commandments, or if you say God, there's a, a way that people are understanding that. If you're in Paris, or if you're in Albany, New York, I learned very quickly things like the Ten Commandments, and even the word God, the word church, people have a very different frame of reference for what they're hearing. So I found myself, because of my context, thanks be to God, having to be very careful how I articulated the good news of Jesus Christ using terms, using concepts, using illustrations, even quoting people that would help the audience to at least relate It was sort of the problem that Paul had when he preached in Jerusalem. He had one kind of context, but when he found himself in Athens with the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers, he used a very different approach, preaching the same gospel, but using a different vocabulary 
and a different grid to make the gospel relevant to the ears of his hearers. Yeah, that's Does that get what you're asking. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's get into this part of it. The whole COVID-19 season. Um, I've seen actually a lot of my friends uh, referring to Jeremiah doing this time, specifically Jeremiah 29. It's, it's interesting. So let's get let's dive and we're going to be a little nerdy tonight. Usually we cover subjects that aren't related specifically to a book of the Bible or even a chapter. Um, but tonight I want to get into that. So what is the story of Jeremiah? If you were to summarize Jeremiah in a nutshell, what's that all about? Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is unleashed upon the world. Surely the second coming is at hand. A few of our listeners, I hope, will understand that's not the Bible. No, that's William Butler Yeats writing in 1919 a very famous poem that we typically, it's called The Second Coming, but most of us know the line, things fall apart. That's where it comes from, William Butler Yeats. Well, that's pretty descriptive of the culture we live in in the 21st century, where things are falling apart. And whether we're talking about the definition of marriage, whether we're talking about the economy, whether we're talking about government and the historic understanding of what it means, in our case, to be in America— American, or whether we're talking about the coronavirus, this reality that things are falling apart. Well, that's Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived in a day when the barbarians were at the gates, when the government was corrupt, when the church was asleep. And God called the prophet in that context to speak the word of the Lord, and that, that was not an enviable role. In fact, during his lifetime, Jerusalem was destroyed. That's the city of God. Jeru Shalom, the city of peace. The temple was reduced to ruins. That's the place where God said, my glory will dwell forever. And the people of God, who had been given the land of promise— supposedly forever, were sent into exile in Babylon. That was the context that Jeremiah was called preach the good news. <laughs> what, was was what was Babylon like? What was Babylon like? Um, maybe a cross between San Francisco, Las Vegas, and New York, and Paris. It was a cultural capital. It was economically strong, militarily powerful. These were the days of Nebuchadnezzar. The hanging gardens of Babylon were considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. Beautiful city. It was uh, much further advanced culturally than the backwater kingdom of Judea and Jerusalem. So to be in Babylon culturally would be like moving from eastern Kentucky to San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, this is a step up, isn't it? But of course, spiritually, Babylon in the Bible is synonymous with worldliness and evil. Babylon finds its roots in the Tower of Babel, man's arrogant attempt to reach God, to reach the gate of heaven by building a man-made structure that reaches God. Well, that's the spirit of Babylon, the meaning of the city. And you turn to the book of Revelation, which is a tale of two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon. Babylon will be destroyed. Babylon will be cast into the ocean and sink like a stone. And that's when the city of God will come from heaven dressed as a bride, and there's going to be the mother of all weddings when Jerusalem becomes the habitation of the people of God. So it's this choice between Jerusalem and Babylon 
that really defines the entire biblical narrative, all the way from Eden to when Jerusalem descends from heaven. Side question. Why do you think that a lot of times cities, in particular, uh, struggle uh, to be, whether it's secular and, and really oftentimes wanting uh, many people in the city wanting nothing or very little to do with God. Uh, why do you think that's the case? Do you remember who built the first city? You're, you're, asking, you're asking very good questions, Ezra. In Genesis chapter 4, we've just lost Eden, paradise lost. Adam and Eve have eaten the forbidden fruit, and they are expelled, not from a city, but from a garden, paradise. They have a son named Cain, who commits the first murder, a fratricide. He kills his brother at church, no less. During worship, he kills his brother. There's been more than one murder during worship services. Most of us <laughs> testify to of one form or another. But the scripture tells us, it may be verse 16, I forget, that Cain went and built a city. So the DNA, the spiritual DNA of the city, according to the Bible, is something very anti-God, anti-Christ. The city are unscattered people. God had told his people in the first commandment, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, scatter. Cain says, don't want to. I'm not going to scatter. I'm going to build a city. And that city eventually became the city of Babel, the anti-God human effort to establish a kingdom according to human ways, which, of course, provoked God ultimately to send the flood and say, let's start again. So that's Genesis where Babylon begins with Babel. And that's where when God's people in Jerusalem sin against God to a degree that God sends judgment and sends them into exile, he sends citizens of the kingdom of God to live in the kingdom of man, Babylon. That is a dynamic that really controls the whole biblical narrative from beginning to end and defines the lives we live, whether we're living in Toronto or Paris or Albany. These cities all have, to some degree, the spirit of Babylon that it's man's work, it's the city of man, not the city of God. Incidentally, here's a point of history. In the fourth or fifth century, when Rome fell, now when Rome fell, just picture New York City in ruins, picture Washington, D.C., a heap of rubble, your most sort of horrific images of Things are falling apart. The center can't hold. The wheels are coming off. The Babylonians are at the gates. But in the fourth century, when Rome fell, across the Mediterranean was a man named Augustine, often called St. Augustine. He picked up his pen and quill and started writing because he said, what do you do as a Christian, a citizen of God's city, when Rome which holds the whole empire together, is a pile of rubble. And he wrote a book called The City of God. And it changed history because what he was describing was the city of man has fallen and now's the moment to understand what God wants to do in the world and the city he is building. I just get, that gets me excited just talking about it. And that's very relevant for where we are today, very relevant for what's happening in the 21st century, when I do believe God is seeking to reform not just his church, but civilization. A lot of people are asking big questions about the meaning of life, the meaning of government, 
what's the purpose? Where's history going? Not just the Christians, but God needs to get his voice into this dynamic. And that's why Jeremiah is so relevant. Jeremiah 29, I want to go directly there. All right. Now, there's a famous passage. I'm just going to read it. And Jeremiah 29, 11. And that's hanging on every wall, every plaque, you know, and, and that's every refrigerator. It's yeah. If someone's got a scriptural tattoo on their body, that's that's where they go. Jeremiah twenty nine and eleven. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and hope. And a lot of times I think we just stop there. We say, Okay, well, God's got great plans for you. You know, you have a future and a hope. Set up the context for that verse. And what does Jeremiah mean when he gives it? You've got to get the context. Jeremiah, the prophet, is still in Jerusalem. Though the Babylonian army came, conquered Jerusalem, took 3,000 exiles to Babylon, they didn't destroy Jerusalem or the temple. They left it intact. Jeremiah is still there. You've got 3,000 exiles in the heart of evil, Babylon. Now, a few years after this letter is written, the Babylonian army is going to come back and destroy Jerusalem and the temple. But Jeremiah is writing this letter to exiles in this context. So Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city of peace, there's a letter sent to the exiles, six, 700 miles away, who are homesick. Oh, my goodness, they must be homesick. What do you do when you're a child of God, but you don't have the temple? You don't have the priests? You don't have Sabbath observance? You're in a pagan environment, then they don't know who Yahweh is or Moses is, and yet you're called to live there. So Jeremiah writes a letter to people who are homesick. And what he tells them is revolutionary. He tells them, well, let me read to you a little bit. Thus says the Lord God to all the exiles who I have sent into exile. Verse 5, build houses and live in them. In other words, you're not going home tomorrow. Get over this desire for your exile to end. I, I build houses, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, get married, seek the shalom, the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile. In other words, seek the shalom of Babylon. Are you kidding? That would be like moving to North Korea <laughs> and, you know, ask God asking us to seek the peace, the shalom there. Now, one of the biggest dynamics going on are there are certain false prophets, and Jeremiah names them. Shemaiah, let's see, uh, Zephaniah, Hananiah. These were the pastors of the megachurches of the day. They wrote the best-selling books with titles like Your Best Life Now. Because Babylon is only going to last two years, they said. You're going to exile, but in two years, you'll come back to Jerusalem. Jeremiah says, don't listen to those preachers. Don't go to their churches. Don't buy their books. You're not going home in two years. You're going back in 70. You're going back, meaning you'll all be dead. 70 years is a lifetime. So Bab the exile in Babylon defines the lifespan of a child of God, a citizen of the city of God living in the city of man. And in that context, Jeremiah says, build houses, settle down, prepare to stay, seek the welfare the shalom of Babylon. In other words, love your Babylonian neighbors because God loves the Babylonians. God so loved the world 
God so loved Babylon that he gave his only son. So you're in exile, but you're there for a purpose, to love Babylon, to love the Babylonians, and to live out the gospel in Babylon. In our case, that was Paris, France. That was Albany, New York. It was getting settling down with the reality God has called me here. I'm not in home, but this is my temporary calling, and I'm to love my neighbors and live the gospel here. Isn't it glorious? That's where God says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans for your shalom, to give you a future hope. You know, I think sometimes in Western culture, we really struggle with this. I was just reading a book uh, yesterday morning um, by Mark, oh man, I'm going to butcher his name, Mark Frogob, I, I believe, and he wrote a book on lament, Christian lament, and he covers lamentations. Uh, it's a bestseller, one of the, you know, fantastic book. I, I highly recommend it. Might have him on and reached out to him. Might have him on an upcoming podcast. He he shared uh, just the importance uh, of of how several years ago we went through different you know different times in our culture where he realized okay it's becoming increasingly secular, uh, um, and the idea of, of being a strong Christian in a secular culture is is more difficult. And he said increasingly he began feeling more like an exile in in America. Now in other countries around the world, the idea of being an exile, being in a hostile territory is very, it's very, they've grown accustomed. People have grown accustomed to that. In America, I would say not so much where there's this kind of sometimes maybe a, a little bit of entitlement where we think, okay, well, we shouldn't be exiles. This is right. Um, What's the difference between living in a land where God is honored as opposed to living in an exile? How do you have to come at that from a different mindset? And where are we at in American society, Canadian society today? I think the norm, this has been long time coming for me. Human history, normative pattern for Christian living is living in Babylon. You don't expect the culture to be God-friendly. You don't expect the emperor to put in God we trust on his coins or to put up a plaque of the Ten Commandments in the, in the front of the courthouse. That's never been done in history, except in basically Israel, and then in basically Western Europe, which was in probably a deformation of Augustine's mindset, the city of God was taken by Constantine and others in a literal, tragic way, trying to form some sort of a theocracy on earth that was, again, built by man, not by God. So I think the norm has been living in a hostile environment where the attitude of the culture is we throw Christians to lions. That's how we treat them. That's where the gospel shines brightest. That's where the church experiences the most dynamic growth. And that's where the people of God are the most healthy, when they're salt and light to a hostile culture. That's where our main calling is. The American experiment which we can debate a long time. Are we, were we a Christian nation? What does that mean? Oh my goodness, that's a very fruitful debate, but it's a real debate and how we understand it. But what's happening today, we certainly can understand that, oh my goodness, we've got basically the centers of power that are hostile not just neutral, but are hostile to the Christian influence. Many have said that when the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage, it was the sort of the definitive statement of the cultural opposition to the gospel. Now, whether that's true in other cultures on the world, but in the culture we live in, we have to find our way as Christians how to be salt and light in our culture. And 
we've given been given the opportunity to vote and freedom of speech. We certainly should use those and push for the agenda that would be honoring God, but without illusions of creating the kingdom of God through our own political prowess. Lord, deliver us from such. Was that more confusing than No, that's, helpful? That, that's, that's helpful. Um, you write in your Bible study. Again, I don't have the book. I just have the Bible study. But you write uh, much of the world's great literature. And this is one of the themes that actually I've uh, remembered and, and used a number of times, in, whether it's a speaking or writing. Uh, much of the world's great literature centers around the theme of homesickness as the most important thing we need to understand about the human condition. So just a quick question before we get into that. How is Jeremiah 29 a tale of homesickness? You've touched on this a, a little bit, but just summarize that briefly before I go on to the next part of it. The, the exiles knew they weren't home. They were trying to live out their faith in a hostile environment. They had a memory of Jerusalem, uh, an interesting memory, probably to be sure. I think we all have a memory of Eden deep in our DNA. We know we're not home. We know we're not home. Um, do you remember uh, there's in literature, it's depicted so powerfully and so often ever since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were expelled and there were cherubim with flaming swords who made it impossible to go home. Human history has lived east of Eden. I'm actually writing a book at the moment on the, on the book of Genesis, a commentary on Genesis, and I'm entitling the book, the whole book on Genesis, East of Eden, because that's where human history is lived. We're not home. And so we've got to deal with this, the Germans call it angst, the French call it ennui, Kierkegaard called it sickness unto death. There are these terms, I think the best term to call it is we're homesick. I found as a pastor in New York, if I preached on sin, a lot of people just said, what? What then? Hitler, Hitler was a sinner, but beyond Hitler, it gets pretty fuzzy in a post-Christian world. But when I would preach on homesickness, I would see heads pop up in the congregation say, that's what I feel. Even when I'm with my best friends, I find myself aware of, I'm not sure this is quite my tribe. It's almost my tribe. I'm not sure this is my home. For me, I know it when I drive to South Georgia where I grew up. And when I drive south and when I get past Atlanta and the dirt begins to turn red and I start to see kudzu and I start to see signs selling boiled peanuts and I start to see peach trees and cotton fields, there's something in me that gets, oh my goodness, incredibly tender. But I don't have to be there but a couple of days to realize though South Georgia's home, it's not really home. It's, it's the scent of a flower I've not yet seen. It's an aroma that attracts me beyond where the aroma takes me. It's homesickness. Nobody says it better than J.R.R. Tolkien in Lord of the Rings, Frodo and Sam. Frodo when he leaves the Shire, and for three movies, he's wandering around saving the world, but the whole time he's homesick, he's so homesick, he dreams, he fantasizes. But the genius of Tolkien is when Frodo gets home, finally, the end of volume three, Frodo says, the Shire's not my home anymore. I've been ruined for what I thought was home, and he gets on a boat and sails off into the sunset, seeking his true home. Oh, my goodness, that's a wonderful picture 
I think, of the human condition. And in a post-Christian world, I don't mean at all that we should stop preaching about sin. Uh, absolutely. But we need to find ways to preach that connect with our audience. And I think homesickness is an endemic disease that every one of our next door neighbors, if you can speak to it and speak into it, they'll be looking at you saying, how did you know what I'm thinking? And do you have a word for me that gives me hope? Yeah, I think that's a huge thing. You know, I'm I'm a podcast junkie, so I love listening to different podcasts and, and authors. And one of the things um, that you hear different podcasters, secular podcasters that will talk about, and and for instance, I was listening to one e- interviewing Elon Musk, uh, the founder of Tesla, talking about how how eventually we can maybe create bodies that live, if not indefinitely, uh, um, many many years, maybe hundreds of years, right? And that's kind of that's kind of like something we fantasize about a lot in society. I hear, you know, if we could just get to the place where we could self-sustain, right? And there's all these things, but I think at the root of that, there's this longing to, okay, is this life really all there is, right? It, yeah. Is this is this it? Uh, because I think, just like you said, you go to, back to, I think it's Georgia, I go back different places, whether it's Cincinnati, Ohio, where I lived for a number of years, or, or um, northern Ontario. It's cool at first, but there's a reason I'm not living in, in both places, just because no. there's you know there's different things happen in life. And, and so there's this whole pull. And, and so speak to the person that's feeling this tension. Maybe they've um, experienced a loss. Like I think this really hits me when I experience uh, maybe someone in my life who has passed away or things like that. Like... That's just, I think that's when the whole issue of homesickness really becomes front and center. We have all these diversions, right? It's like, okay, consume media, veg out on this, entertain yourself to death. But then all of a sudden life hits and you're like, oh man, like, okay, this can't be all there is, right? To me, one of the best illustrations, and it's not from the Bible, it's from the Odyssey. Homer's Odyssey. I mean, these themes are everywhere when you begin to see them. Homer, excuse me, uh, Ulysses, after the Trojan War, is trying to get back to Ithaca, home. For 10 years, he's been gone, and he's so homesick. Well, he takes this journey home. It's a journey, theme of a journey. Again, not scripture, but there's a lot of truths in it. One of the places they visit on their journey trying to get home is the island of the lotus eaters. It's an interesting place. I, I didn't read the Odyssey until I was 55 years old and was captured by it. But the lotus eaters, this was the deal. There was a plant on the island, a lotus plant, that if you ate the plant, you would forget home. And the people that lived on that island were people who had gotten there because they were so miserable because of their homesickness, but they discovered they could deal with their misery by eating a plant that caused them to forget home. So the sailors on Ulysses' boat were very excited. We can deal with our pain by eating the fruit. Ulysses said, Get off this island immediately. This is the most dangerous island. This is more dangerous than the Cyclops. This is more dangerous than the Sirens, the ladies who are trying to lure us to our rocks. This island will destroy your soul if you forget your home. So you're exactly right, Ezra. People today deal with homesickness by substance abuse, by entertainment, by music, by keeping the video on all day long, lest I am reminded that I'm not home and I haven't yet found my tribe. We've got to find a way to preach that actually increases that pain, helping people have the courage to say, face the truth, because if you forget your home and you die in exile, you're eternally lost you're eternally lost. There is a home, and your ache for it is a good ache. Homesickness is a good disease to have. In fact, it's the people who remember their home 
that are the most effective in helping Babylon be a fairly decent place to live. <laughs> yeah, I think that you make yeah. such a great point there because I think, especially my generation, where we didn't go through World War II, we didn't, you know, you don't see all these atrocities that we've seen in previous generations, I think it's easy to get consu consume our minds with good things, uh, social justice issues, and we say, okay, we're going to make our lives about this, right? We're going to fight for, you know, you name it, um, gender equality, uh, racial issues. I mean, all these are good things to fight for, but sometimes I, I fear, I guess, from my perspective, we can make this the sole focus, and we're going to, I'm going to fight for this cause, and it's a good cause, right? It's a cause that we need to fight for. But when it becomes our sole focus and we lose sight of why we're doing that, why it's important, then we end up just kind of circling out here, kind of doing something that really has a, has a little bit of value, but not really the eternal value that, um, that, that God would want. In the 16th century, Thomas More, wrote a book called Utopia. And his it was an imaginary island, I think, that where things were what they ought to be, sort of. But the word utopia, this is the whole message. Topos, topia in Greek means place. If you put the U in front of that, it's a negation. The word literally means no place. And the message, if I understand Thomas More correctly, is this utopia we want to build, we always think if we can elect the right president, if we can get the Supreme Court to be a little different, if we can change our mayor to another country, we think these are rabbit runs that lead nowhere, no place. It doesn't mean we shouldn't invest ourselves in social issues. Of course we should. That's what it means to love our neighbor. Absolutely. But don't be fooled. We are not going to build the kingdom of God. Jesus will build the kingdom when he returns. And I'm frankly waiting for that day. Then the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Hallelujah. That's not just George Frederick Handel and the Hallelujah Chorus. That's the book of Revelation. But that happens when the heavens open and the white horse comes. In the meantime, we're to build houses, settle down, seek the shalom of the city, love our neighbors. That's about as good as it gets. And it's, it's actually wonderful. It's where we find our calling, and we're not seduced by government voices or by power or by politics. We just simply love our neighbor and seek the shalom of the city. Here's the deal. Learning how to live in Babylon without becoming Babylonian. Yeah. That's the deal, to be in the world not of the world. And typically the church has fallen into one of two ditches. Either we say, well, we can't be in the world because the world's so wicked, so let's build walls, let's build a monastery, let's, let's just hang out with our tribe and let the world go to hell. Or the other ditch is where we so embrace the world that the church becomes just as worldly as the world is. We've got to learn to follow Jesus' command to be in the world without being worldly. It's a good thing when the boat is in water. It's a bad thing when water is in the boat. <laughs> it's a good thing when the church is in the world. It's a bad thing when the world is in the church. So that's our challenge is living in Babylon, loving Babylonians, looking for culturally relevant ways to address Babylon, but yet not becoming Babylonian and recognizing Babylon is not our home. That's about as missiological as 
I can be. And it comes to me, it's, it's right out of Scripture, particularly the book of Genesis is where it begins. Genesis is one of the greatest missiological texts ever written. Don't get me started. <laughs> yeah, because you just wrote a whole book on that. Got to ask you this one. It's a little bit of a curveball. Um, when was a time in your life that you felt the most homesick? If you were to point back. And why? From a... I don't know where you want to go with this. From a, from a nostalgic sentimental sort of point of view. I remember my freshman year when I went all the way from Georgia to Kentucky. Oh my goodness, that was a long way to go to school. And I was incredibly homesick. To wait for Thanksgiving was pure torture to go home. And every day I would go to the CPO. This was long before the days of email and text and uh, helicopter parents, and I would open my little CPO box, college post office, hoping there was a letter from home. In fact, when I preached on Jeremiah 29, that's how I began the sermon. You know, I was looking in that mailbox, hoping for a letter from home. Well, that's what Jeremiah sent to the exiles. There's a letter from home, and they read it with great Vigor, to, to, because it reminded them of home. Well, I guess I guess uh, specifically the question yeah. is is from a spiritual perspective, um, because he, I, the reason I ask this question, I think I in my own life, and I think this would be the the case with many Christians, um, you go through seasons where life is pretty good, right? Life seems okay, and and I you know you hear different people say before they get married, man, I just hope that um, <laughs> my time doesn't come up before I get married, right? Or I have kids, or I want to see my kids grow. Um, but as you look back on your life, what were the times where you were just the most homesick? And, and how, I guess the greater question to add on to that is, how do we live in that kind of state where homesickness, spiritual homesickness, becomes our default and not just something we think about every now yeah. and again? Well, part of it is a theological issue. We don't think right. We don't have the right mindset. We haven't heard the right sermon. We listen to these super pastors who tell us what we want to hear. The exile will be over in two years, and you can go back and get back to life as normal. And we buy their books. We go to their churches. We listen to that prosperity kind of gospel that reassures me, this world is, is okay. I like it here. That's not the gospel we're to preach. We're to remind people, even life at its best, and I think it's when Frodo gets back to the Shire, he's finally, there are three volumes. We've been watching this poor guy long to get home, and he gets home, and he discovers it's not home anymore. That's Tolkien's genius. To me, the whole three volumes is about that. The Shire is a good place. It's a wonderful place. God's in that place, but it's still not home. God, Abraham was called, and he went out not knowing where he was going, but he was looking for the city whose builder and maker is God. And that ain't Babylon. That's not Washington. That's not New York. Yeah. There's only one city of God. And I think our culture, our world, is ready to hear a gospel like that. And it's not an other world. It, it is otherworldly in the sense that it reminds us only God can build the city of God. But it's very this-worldly in the fact But when I know where I'm going— then the road that gets me there becomes very important to take care of. Can I give you a quick, here's, in Bryson City, Tennessee, or North Carolina, it's right in the Smoky Mountains, uh, Smoky Mountains, there's a road called the Road to Nowhere. It's, I, if you ever go to Bryson City, go find the Road to Nowhere. It's about six or eight miles 
way up into the mountains because in the 1940s, they were going to build a road from Bryson City to Knoxville, and it went, was going to go right across the high peaks of the Smoky Mountains. Well, for some reason, they stopped building the road. They dug a tunnel, and you can walk through the tunnel, and then the road ends just in forest. Well, here's the thing. The road to nowhere, though there's lots of people that walk it, ride bikes on it, but nobody keeps the highway up. It's cracked. Trees are growing over it. Why do you not take care of the road to nowhere? To ask the question is to answer it because it's not going anywhere. That's the flaw of atheism. Atheism teaches a road to nowhere. The conclusion is, well, why do I take care of this world if the road doesn't go anywhere? Christians are the one who understand. No, this, this road's going somewhere. The city of God is coming and that means we need to take care of this world and we need to trim the bushes and keep the pavement well because this road is important because there's a destination. I wish I knew how to preach that like that needs to be preached. But Christians, to say that they're so earthly minded, they're no earthly good is just a damnable lie. It's, a, it's, it's, it's the antithesis of what Jeremiah is saying to take care of Babylon. God loves Babylon. Because a lot of Jews didn't believe that. They said, no, God hates Babylonians. It's a wicked pagan city. That's true, but that's precisely why God loves Babylon and why he wants his people living there. I want to draw this to, to a close here, but going back to Let's pick up uh, verse 2911, you know, he's talking and he says, for I know the plans I have for you, right? Plans for a future, for hope. As Israel really, you know, Jeremiah is conveying these words, and they're received to <laughs> these people who are in exile. What was their hope? What What is what is God, what is Jeremiah, you know, conveying to the people? What is their hope at that point? Is it? The Messiah? What, what, what does that look like? What's the time frame of that hope? And then what? how does that speak to us today? I think hope is one of those things that the older you get, the more you sort of question, do I understand what I'm waiting for? <laughs> and uh, because it, I think for the exiles in Babylon— you know, about the only thing they could hope for is if can, if we can just get back to Jerusalem. It was a little bit like when I was a freshman in college, if I can just get back to South Georgia and eat some boiled peanuts and fried chicken, you know, that's that'll deal with the ache I feel. No, it won't. C.S. Lewis has this line in, um, oh, which book is it? But he said, it's these memories that we have nostalgia for are not, it's not the thing itself that we want. They are the aroma of a flower we've never found. They are news from a city we've never visited. So it's, 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 the, it's refining our hope, the future and a hope. You know, even just recently, I've been realizing that most of my life, I thought the end of human history would be when we die and go to heaven. That's not really how the Bible describes it. The Bible says when we get to the end of human history, heaven is going to come to earth. And this earth, this earth is going to be renewed. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. So it's like, oh my goodness, is that our hope? It's not just that I'm going to sit on a cloud and play a harp for millennia of years. Frankly, that has very little appeal to me. <laughs> if you want to know the truth. But the thought of a new heaven and a new earth, 
the thought of the kingdoms of this world being the kingdoms of our Lord where he reigns, that's a hope and that's a future that just blows my socks off. Hmm. And it's a real one. And I think that's what Frodo is dealing with, you know, as he realizes, um, oh, where, see if I, um, if I find in myself, oh, here it is, C.S. Lewis. Um, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Yeah. The desires we feel are God placed there, but nothing in this world can fully satisfy what I'm searching for, what I'm hungry for. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. That's our hope. I love the something. We'll see God. I love something. One of the things I love that uh, uh, N.T. Wright has said is he's said there was something that transformative that happened in his mind when it shifted from um, him focusing on. I'm just, I have to get to heaven, right? I have to get to heaven and just praying that heaven would come down to him. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And I think that's a big transformation that I think, quite frankly, doing this whole coronavirus, we see whether it's on social media, the way Christians oftentimes respond, there can be the desire to say, okay, well, let's just hang on and let's just get to, you know, let's just get to heaven. Everything will be okay. Or to say, well, I, I wish things would be different, right? If government would just be different, if, local politicians would do something, then I wouldn't ha have these challenges, right? But we can't escape that, this, this whole desire that, man, okay, we were created for another world. We're just here temporarily and insane. So here's here's how I want to close out tonight. Speak to the person right now during this whole, obviously, the coronavirus season. And, and in some ways, depending where you live at in the U.S. and Canada, you might live in more of a quote-unquote Babylonian culture. You might not. Um, let's speak to the, the Christian right now that's in a tough place, maybe a hard area. A lot of their neighbors don't know God, don't really care about God that much. What should consume most of their thinking? Uh, what should consume their prayer, their prayer life? How should they be praying um, and caring for those around them during this time. Let's close it out with that. Life is suffering. The coronavirus, in some ways, is not an interruption of our routines. It is a reminder of what life really is about. We're all going to get sick we're all going to die. There's no exceptions to that. We've been reminded of that in a very brutal way, and it's painful. It is very painful. People today are hurting financially. Their futures are up for grabs, and some are sick. Some are dying. We've all been touched by this in various ways. This can be a good thing. Joseph in Egypt, told his brothers at the end of his life, his brothers who had sold him as a slave, practiced child trafficking, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. I think the greatest thing we can do in these days of pain and question and uncertainty is say, God, in your grace, would you do what we can't do? That's what grace is. We keep wanting to build towers of Babel. Would you reshape and reform through this pain the way we think? What our priorities are, what our dreams are, what our hopes are, what our future is anticipated so that we become more truth-focused Truth is painful. Truth is very painful. 
But truth, Jesus said, will set you free. And when the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you in all truth. And what we need more than anything else is a truth encounter. And Jesus is the one who said, if you like truth, you'll love me because I am truth. I don't just teach truth. I am. Get to know him. He'll get us through. He'll take us home. Stan, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, just to, just before wrapping up, a couple things. Uh, next Saturday night, instead of Sunday, I have uh, speaker Daniel M. He's coming on the podcast. If you don't know Daniel, he's written a number of great books. We'll be sp- speaking on his uh, latest one uh, about how what we do, what, how we work, isn't all about who we are. It doesn't define us. And uh, he, he shares a little bit of his journey. He went to South Korea, was part of a 50,000-member congregation, and all of a sudden, things begin to shift. And now he pastors a large church in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. But God has done some amazing things uh, in, in his life, and you're not going to want to miss that uh, this coming Saturday night, 6.30. Stan, thank you so much. Uh, man, I just love what you had to share, so really appreciate it. Thank you. It's a privilege. God bless you. Well, there you have it. And I just appreciate Stan coming on and sharing this. Really, really helpful. And uh, hopefully it hits where you're at. Maybe there's a, a situation in your life where you find yourself like, man, I feel like I am living in Babylon. And uh, I just encourage you, go back and read Jeremiah this week. Spend some time, especially twenty chapter 29. And uh, man, it, it's such been such an encouragement to me, and I hope it's an encouragement to you as well. Anyways, until next time, my name's Ezra Beyer. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. For more info on this program, simply visit our website, themondaychristian.com. That's themondaychristian.com.